thanks for joining us for worship here. Uh, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8, as I'm calling a little bit of an audible. For those of you that have been reading along uh, with our reading plan, you know that this was scheduled for Joshua chapter 9 this morning. I've decided to spend a little bit of time, stop and pause on the end of Joshua 8, so we'll be looking at those last few verses. I realize it may be a little bit of a whiplash for those of you that were here last week, as we covered 56 verses last week, and this week we're covering six. So the jarring approach is probably a little bit shocking to some of you, but this stuff was just too good to not pause and take a little bit of time to go through it in more detail. This morning, I'm going to start off our time studying Joshua chapter 8 a little bit different than we normally do. We're going to do a little bit of an exercise, okay? So I'm going to ask you to stretch, stretch a little bit here out of what we normally do. If you have a piece of paper with you, get out a piece of paper. For those of you that have a piece of paper, or, or pull out your phone and open up a note on your phone somewhere. Or if you're really, really desperate, go ahead and grab one of those uh, upcoming events sheets that Jennifer has in the back of the sheet in front of you. Feel free to write on that as well. I've got five questions I want you to actually write down answers to this morning. Not just hypothetically, actually write down an answer to these five questions. Don't worry, we won't be collecting these at the end of the service. We won't be passing them down the aisles and having someone grade your work, okay? I'm just asking you to write it down so you can be totally honest. All right, question number one. What was the first thing you noticed when you walked into the service this morning? What was the first thing that you paid attention to when you came into our service here this morning? I see people looking at me. You should be writing, okay? I'm kidding, okay? I'm making a mental note, something like that. Okay, question number one. Question number two, what has been your favorite part of the service so far? Favorite part of the service so far? Question number three, what has been your least favorite part of the service so far? And again, I'm not going to take a survey, we're not going to tell Ian, okay? Question number four, if you could describe the feel of our service this morning in one word, what would it be? One word that would describe our service thus far. Everybody got a word? Question number five, last but not least, if you could describe your attitude in worship this morning in one word, what would it be? Where is your heart at? Where is your attitude at? What are you thinking and feeling as we worship this morning? Now, keep a hold of those answers. I'm not going to tell you quite yet why I had you write down those answers, but don't lose them, as we'll be coming back to that later in the service. Okay, so keep a hold of that. We're going to be coming back to that here in just a moment. For now, I want us to turn to the passage at hand. As I mentioned, we shifted focus a little bit, and I decided we wanted to spend a few extra, or an extra week here on verses 30 through 35 at the end of chapter 8, because this section describes what is a corporate worship service, a covenant renewal ceremony that the Israelites celebrate. And I just didn't have time to cover it effectively last week, so I wanted to spend the whole week on it here this morning. And as I read through this section, I'm going to read it in advance of the message. I want you to write down with your notes or make a mental note along with what you've already written down what the tone of Israel's assembly is here. As I read through this service, this ceremony that they go through, I want you to ask yourself what attitudes, what priorities define this service, define Israel's attitude, their ceremony, their engagement in this service as I read through this. 
Can we do that? All right, Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges stood in opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. What? attitude, what priority is expressed here on the part of Israel? Get something written down, and then I want us to take a moment and pray as we head into the service this morning. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to gather here this morning, for the chance to sing your praises, for the fact that you desire for us to sing praises to you. Lord, this is all a work of you. And so as we've sung and as we've prayed, And now as we seek to study your word, we pray that you would guide and direct. Lord, that you would find us faithful in this endeavor, that you would speak through me, that you would be present in our lives and our hearts to help us receive your word the way it was intended to be received. So Father, just act as only you can. Do what only you can this morning for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, now, before moving farther into this text or satisfying the curiosity that I know is bothering some of you already, it's worth noting that this here is not the first unique covenant ceremony that we've run into in the book of Joshua. As you may recall, the book of Joshua is somewhat riddled with these sort of ceremonies, these sort of services that take place. Packed in between all the various battles and action sequences in the book of Joshua, the author slips in consistently these significant covenant renewal ceremonies, these reminders, the priority, um, priority shifting events, if you will, for the people of Israel. Do you remember the first one we ran into? Here a few weeks ago, after God gives his charge to Joshua and after the spies spy out the land and they cross the Jordan River, David talked about it. Israel paused to reaffirm the covenant by engaging in this circumcision ceremony and by celebrating the Passover meal. We recall that from a few weeks ago. Now they have defeated Jericho and they lost at Ai, but they addressed that sin. And after rectifying that situation, they ultimately are successful at Ai. And again, here at the end of chapter 8, they pause. They pause to renew the covenant. They pause to celebrate what God has done for them. And I'm going to make the case to you this morning that their covenant renewal ceremony is marked by three attitudes, by three different attitudes, three different priorities that are also relevant for us in our worship as well. First, their service is marked by grateful worship. Verses 30 and th- through 32, we see that their service, this covenant renewal, is marked by grateful worship. Joshua begins the whole service by building an altar. Look at verse 30. 
At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. You may recall that from Deuteronomy chapter 27 that we read here before we began. So he builds this altar, and where he builds this altar is incredibly significant. We probably don't think too much about it, but it says it's on Mount Ebal. Now, where is Mount Ebal? If I can get the map thrown up here on the screen here real quickly, okay? What you see there is the Dead Sea down in the right corner. Jericho is right next to that red triangle, and that red triangle is where Gilgal was. That was where their base of operations for the conquest of the land is. So having defeated Jericho and gone up to the west and defeated Ai, they now march about 20 miles north up to where you see that red square. That is Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They march 20 miles up north in order to build an altar on this specific mountain. Why are they doing this? This is not what you would do in a military campaign. Why would you march 20 miles just to build an altar? They could have built it at Gilgal, right? Well... Strictly speaking, they built it because that's what God, via Moses, told them to do. You saw that, right? As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. God had told them in Deuteronomy 27, when you enter the land, build the altar on Mount Ebal. Now, Mount Ebal is an incredibly significant place. Shechem, in between Ebal and Gerizim, we'll talk about this more, is a significant place in the history of Israel. Abraham was there, Joseph was there, Jacob was there. Ultimately, there's a very good likelihood in John 4 that Jesus and the Samaritan woman were somewhere in this proximity as well. But it's important to note that he said, this is where you should build it. And so Joshua and the people do exactly what God has told them to do, right? Now, this is worth noting here. Let me just take a moment, and this isn't really like center of the text, but let me just note here that it's very critical that Joshua affirms Moses' inspired authorship of the Pentateuch here. There are many people that will make the case to you that the Bible is full of errors, that the Old Testament in particular is unreliable because they don't know who wrote it and they don't know when it was written and they don't know who contributed to it. It was put together at a later date. Here, the very next generation after Moses, Joshua affirms Moses' authorship of this book. And not only that, he also affirms the divine authorship of the book. This is the word of the Lord. You're going to hear all sorts of things that contradict that. Let me just say, the Bible teaches that reality. We can rely on these first five books of the Old Testament. But I want to note real quickly the nature of this altar that he says, okay? An altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. Now, why is that important? Why is it that God here commands them to build an altar with uncut stones, with stones that haven't been chiseled down and made into perfect blocks? Those of us that are OCD, this would have driven us crazy, right? Right? We're like, I want to make these neat little blocks and I want to make an altar. Okay, But God says here, don't do that. Instead, I want you to build it out of uncut stones. Why? I think what's going on here is he's emphasizing God's role, not man's, in the worship of God. That God is the starting point. That God is the origin for this covenant and for the worship of God. This defies any hint of humanism. Are you familiar with the concept of humanism? Humanism is this idea that morality and what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live, what we value in life, all begin with humanity. It all begins by looking inward, by looking at ourselves, by figuring out what we think is important, and that is the way we should live our lives. Instead, here, in contradiction, God definitively claims to be the source of humanity, the source of the covenant, the source of the moral codes, and the source of redemption for his people. 
He says, you do not come to me by something great that you have built. Instead, just built it out of uncut stones. Because the pageantry and the ceremony isn't the point. I want you to build an altar out of uncut stones. God is unequivocally initiating here as the source of the covenant for the Israelites. And that's important for us to keep in mind as well, that God initiates, that God condescends. We don't reach up to him. God is the one who starts the relationship we have with him. And we'll see why this is so critical here in a moment. But once the altar is built, they offer sacrifices on the altar. Look back at verse 31. We see what they do immediately. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, if you're anything like most of us, you read over that and you go, well, they offered two kinds of sacrifices. That's neat, right? Few of us take time to consider what exactly does he mean by burnt offerings and peace offerings? Let me try and explain a little bit of that. Because the list of those two things and the order is actually critical here. First, let me remind us what burnt offerings are. Burnt offerings are sacrifices of atonement. They're sacrifices given specifically to atone for sin. You can read about these in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. You can go through the whole ceremony, how the sin is placed on the animal and how the animal is killed, and then how the entire animal is burnt up to pay the penalty for man's sin. And what needed to be atoned for here in Joshua chapter 8? Achan's sin, right? Achan's sin in chapter 7, they had broken the covenant, they had rebelled against God, and they were in contradiction to what God had called them to do. And so here they begin with these burnt offerings. There is an atonement, there is a sacrifice made for the sins for their rebellion against God. That's critical to note. Because then after it is followed with sacrificed peace offerings. Now what's a peace offering? Peace offerings are very different in the Old Testament. These burnt offerings were entirely consumed and they were given for atonement. Peace offerings, on the other hand, are sacrifices of celebration. They're sacrifices of worship. Elsewhere, they're called fellowship offerings. This is explained in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to read about that. And what's interesting to note between these two sacrifices is that in one case, the whole sacrifice is burnt up to pay for sin. In the other case, a portion of the sacrifice is saved, and then they celebrate by eating it. Did you see that when we read? Do you remember that at the end of, look at Deuteronomy chapter 27. Turn back in your Bibles to that section. Okay, this is, this is important for us to note here. I promise I'm making a point. I'm not just like waxing eloquent about Jewish tradition. Okay, in, Deut in Deuteronomy 27, in verse 6, we see, And you shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. See how this works? Are you following the progression? This order is not coincidental here. The atonement for sin precedes the fellowship with God. You see how that ceremony is critical. God's mercy is the means of fellowship with him. And so they sacrifice these burnt offerings and burn it up as atonement for their sin, and then they have fellowship and they celebrate that relationship that they have with God. This is really critical because we just read over that and we go, well, that's nice. They offered some sacrifices. The symbolism here is really critical, and we'll see that even more here in just one moment. But the ceremony isn't complete. Let's go back to verse 32, and then there's one more thing that's added to this. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Okay, so here's what we've got. We've got them building this altar, 
And then we've got them sacrificing, sacrifices of atonement and sacrifices of celebration. And then Joshua comes in and he writes the law on, on the altar. And we go, what? Right? He gathers all the people together and in front of all the people, with everyone there, he writes the law on the altar. Why? Think about this. Why is this so significant that he writes the law on the altar where the sin was paid for? God's law was the very thing that they had violated. And that is where the penalty was paid as the animal died on that altar. And so they write the terms of the covenant. They write the law on the altar and they say, that is where that penalty that we deserved was paid. Remember the pile of stones for Achan's sin? That that is where God's judgment was met out on that animal instead of us. And so they write the law on the altar and say, God, we're casting ourselves before you. We're asking for your mercy here. By sacrificing this animal that's dying instead of us, we're relying upon you for salvation. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we go through all of these interesting ceremonies and all of this procedure for their sacrifice? This is why I think it's critical. Because the covenant renewal of Israel here is marked by grateful worship. See what I'm saying? Grateful worship is the appropriate response to undeserved mercy. They are able to sacrifice and to celebrate God because atonement has been made for their sin. You see how that might be relevant to us today? You see that, how that might be relevant to how we celebrate and how we worship on a Sunday morning? While we don't participate in the sacrificial system, while we don't need to renew the covenant because it's been broken, because Christ in the book of Hebrews was the one-time sacrifice for our sin, who no one needs to repay, no one needs to re-sacrifice because it was perfect, and this new covenant has been established, how much more should our response for that atonement be grateful worship? Think about that. Our church's covenant celebrations should be marked by genuine worship too, should they not? And think about it. Like, we don't go through the process like they did with the sacrificial system and all of that. I admit to that. And yet, every time we gather together as a church, we are celebrating the new covenant, are we not? We are celebrating the fact that Christ paid it all. We are celebrating the fact that we don't have to continue slaughtering goats and bulls and sheep up here on this stage every week to pay the penalty for our sin because Christ did. Right? And so if their ceremony, if their service was marked by grateful worship because of what God did for them, how much more should ours today? The fact that once and for all, the sin was paid for. And we can look to Christ and we can say, that's where we're relying upon. That the sin of Achan, that our own private sin, you probably felt some conviction last week, did you not? As we were confessing our own sin, as we were confessing our own private sin, that drives us to this point. That drives us to celebrate the fact that Christ paid it all. Does that not inspire grateful worship in you? If this is true, and our church's covenant celebrations, when we come together as a church, should be marked by grateful worship, think back to the questions that I asked you at the beginning of the service. Think back to what you were thinking about when you walked in. 
To what attitudes were present in your heart? To what thoughts were the priority? To what things you noticed? To what attracted your attention as we gathered together in the morning as a church? Ask yourself, does grateful worship describe those attitudes? The things that caught your attention. Was it Christ's sacrifice for you and your need for atonement and your need for deliverance and Christ as the perfect sacrifice for that? Or was it the fact that you fought with your kids this morning on the way to church? Was it the fact that you couldn't find a good parking spot? Was it the fact that nobody greeted you as you walked in? Was it the fact that you couldn't find a seat to sit down in? Or was it the excellencies of Christ and how he has paid it all for you? What we focus our attention on will direct where our attitude is at as we gather for worship. It also plays into how we celebrate the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? As we celebrate the covenant that we have, as we look to Christ who died, was buried, and was raised again on our behalf, as we celebrate that in baptism, and as we participate in the Lord's Supper in communion on a month-to-month basis. Where is your head at in those moments? Where is your heart at in those moments? Is it an attitude, is it a heart of grateful worship, or is it focused on the externals? Is it focused on the trappings? Is it focused on other people and other things and other activities? A little food for thought there. I would make the case that just like the Israelites here, every time we gather, we should worship God with hearts that are grateful for the salvation he's given us. That should be one of the predominant attitudes as we gather together for worship on a Sunday morning. Is your heart, is your attitude defined by grateful worship this morning? But in addition to grateful worship, Israel's covenant renewal is also marked by sober obedience. Look at verse 33. Sober obedience. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with the elders and the officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. Now that sentence was a mouthful. Okay, that sentence is a little convoluted, so let me see if I can't pull it apart. Who is involved here? He says, all Israel is involved at the beginning. He notes both groups, both the sojourners, those that were with them that weren't ethnically Jews, the foreigners, those that had converted to Judaism here, and also the native-born, also those that were ethnically descendants of Abraham. Both those people gathered together, and he adds that it included all the leaders as well, the elders, the officers, and their judges. The point is the whole nation, everyone is participating in this service. Everyone is participating in this ceremony, and so much so that even where they stand is important. Did anybody else get lost in that? If you read on, okay, they stood on opposite sides of the ark, before the Levitical priests, okay? So they are standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant. They are centered on God's presence here. Remember how we've said repeatedly through the book of Joshua that the Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence. The people are gathered here around God's presence. Their focus is on the Ark. Their focus is on God's presence. And then they're split into these two halves, right? Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. And we go, what in the world is being talked about here? Okay, now remember those two mountains we threw up on the, on the map. So you've got Mount 
Ebal to the north, and you've got Mount, well, I guess it'd be backwards, Mount Ebal to the north, and Mount, for those of you that are cardinal direction people, like me, Ebal there, Gerizim here. Okay, the people are standing down in between. And they split the group into two halves, and half of Israel is on Mount Ebal, and half of Israel is on Gerizim. And don't forget the fact that the, the, the altar is on Mount Ebal. Okay? Now, keep that picture in your mind and turn to the left in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is significant. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, there's something really interesting worth noting here. So keep this picture in your mind. Half of them on this side, half of them on this side. The Ark of the Covenant right in the middle. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 26, we read this. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I have commanded you today and go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, when you enter to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Okay, now remember where we are. Ark of the Covenant in the middle. People split in half, half on Mount Ebal, half on Mount Gerizim. The altar that's the sacrifice is on Mount Ebal with the curses. You see what he's trying to do here? You see what's going on here? The ark is in the middle, and half of them are standing on the cursed side, where the sacrifice was just made to atone for their sin. And half of them are standing on Mount Ebal. And these mountains are about a mile and a half apart, but down in between them, there's about a 500-yard stretch where they meet. And it's a natural auditorium. People have actually gone there, and they speak, and you can hear. Everybody for a long ways can hear. So everybody is able to hear, and they recite these blessings and curses. It is a geographic illustration to the people of Israel about the significance and the choice that stands before them. As they stand there, God says, this is the route of the blessings that I've offered. This is the route of the curses I've offered. Which path are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? You remember later on in Joshua when we get that famous line, choose this name whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? That ceremony, Joshua utters those words standing in this place. And he tells them to look up at this mountain and be reminded of the curses. And he tells them to look up at this mountain and be reminded of the blessings and to make a choice. And the altar where the sin is atoned for stands on the cursed mountain. Okay, that was really significant to me. Maybe that I must be the only one. That's fascinating to me to think about that illustration, to think about the fact that every time somebody were to walk by those mountains, they would be reminded, this is the choice I get to make today. Am I going to follow God's commands and receive his blessing, or am I going to follow my own way and fall under his curse? And it's worth noting where the emphasis is put in this verse. Look at back, back at verse 33. Turn back to Joshua chapter 8, verse 33. So they go through this ceremony, and they stand on both mountains, and the verse ends with, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And though they recite the blessings and though they recite the curses, it's clear that God's law, the emphasis here is on the blessing. See that? They did it for what purpose? To bless the people of Israel, to remind them that God's word, that God's law is a blessing to them. 
While the blessings and the curses are both read, the emphasis is on the blessing. The blessing is to be a motivation from God to the immeasurable goodness that he has shown his people. Remember, he's already rescued them out of Israel. He's already saved them, and he says, now that I've saved you, here is your choice. Are you going to follow me, or are you going to walk your own way? The principle here is that in addition to grateful worship, Israel's covenant renewal is marked by sober obedience. This renewal ceremony, they stand before them and they see the option that is spread out before them. What will they choose to do? Who will they choose to follow? Why? Because sober obedience is the appropriate response to undeserved mercy. We don't obey and are therefore saved. We are saved and therefore motivated to obey. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Trust leads to obedience. Not the other way around. We can't get that confused. But we have to recognize that 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 sequence is critical. And that's the same sort of dichotomy that Jesus lays out in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Turn to the right in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. There's an important thing to note here. Most of us are probably familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus stands up and he explains all of the ways that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had messed up the law. All this legalistic commands and prescriptions that the Pharisees had given the people. And he punctuates that message in Matthew chapter 7 this way. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. See how he's illustrating that same point? The Israelites are standing there in between two mountains saying, choose this day whom you will serve. Which way will you go, blessings or curses? Jesus stands on a mountain years later and says, are you going to build your house on the rock or are you going to build your house on the sand? How are you going to live your life? Choose what you're going to do. And the implications of that is that our personal faith must be marked by trust. It must be marked by a desire to follow God. A desire to personally submit to his will and his way, to submit to his word and to follow in his steps. And that will manifest itself in our personal lives, right? Our personal lives will be marked by obedience, not because we have to, because we get to. Because before we were slaves to sin and now we're slaves to righteousness, as Paul would say. And I would make the case to you that our corporate gatherings should also exemplify both of these things. There should be a sober obedience in our attitudes as we gather together. A seriousness to the fact that sin has a pervasive effect and that God has held out before us the opportunity to obey him and be blessed for it. So think back to your list of things. As you were walking into the service this morning, as you were thinking about worshiping God, was there a sober desire to obey him in whatever he might command you to do here in this moment? In my own life, at least, it's so easy to get caught up in the other things that take place and not to think of exactly what I'm here to do on a Sunday morning. 
And I'm here to express grateful worship to God, but I'm here to soberly seek to obey whatever he commands me to do. Not because the weight of obedience is so heavy, but because the blessing, the opportunity to obey God is so great. Is there a sober obedience to your attitude as you walk in on a Sunday morning? Every time we gather, we celebrate with sober obedience the opportunity that we now finally, through the power of Christ, can obey. But there's one final attitude we see in Israel's ceremony here in Joshua chapter 8 that I think is worth us noting. One final attitude that's present in their service, in their ceremony. Their service is finally marked by biblical diversity in verses 34 and 35. Now, don't let me lose you here. Don't get stuck on that word diversity, okay? I'm not talking D-E-I, sort of like, that's not what I mean, okay? But I couldn't think of a better word than diversity. Diversity is a good word, okay? Here both in the reading's content and in the assembly's composition are things worth noting. First, look at what they read, verse 34. And afterward, after all this ceremony that has taken place, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. What was read? The words of the Lord, the words of the law. Now, I should note here that probably what he doesn't mean is exhaustively all 14 hours worth of the Pentateuch. I don't know if you know or not, but if you sat down in one setting and tried to read Genesis through Deuteronomy in completion, it would take you about 14 hours to read. So probably that's not what he means. Probably what he means is an example or an excerpt from it, maybe the possibility of reading like the entire book of Deuteronomy, which takes about two and a half hours, a bit more manageable. But what they do is this here at the end, they remind the people of the word of God. Just like every other part of the ceremony was explicitly grounded in the word of God, they stand before the people and they read the law of the Lord, just like Josiah will do hundreds of years later. He said, because this is what the people need to hear. And as a side note, it's worth mentioning that You may not be aware, but that's exactly the same thing we try to do here in every single one of our services as we plan them. Our desire is that every component of our service be explicitly led by and informed by what Scripture teaches. And so there's seven priorities that we put in all of our services, that we put in everything that we plan. First is Scripture reading, as we publicly read God's Word. You've probably noticed over the last year or two that we've tried to prioritize reading more of God's Word publicly. Just reading it, without explanation, without teaching, just in, let, it, let it lie. Secondarily, we've tried to prioritize teaching as well. Obviously, this, this aspect of preaching and teaching the Word of God to God's people. In our corporate singing, we try to prioritize singing the truths of God's Word. So everything that you find in the song is either explicitly something from Scripture or something that Scripture teaches. We prioritize the ordinances, this idea of what God has commanded us to do to celebrate the gospel and to declare the truths of it. And there's a few more that might surprise you a little bit. Number five is corporate prayer. As we seek to offer prayers to God of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But you'll notice that most of the prayers are led by a passage of Scripture. And if it's not read in advance, it's informed by Scripture. Number six is mutual encouragement as we publicly testify to what God's Word is doing in the life of our church. And then finally, the idea of vision casting. Just like Joshua saying, God has said, go take Jericho, let's go take Jericho. We try to communicate what God is calling us to do as a church via what he's told us to do in his word. The priority is that every part of the service is explicitly what God has called us to do as a church. 
That's what we seek to do as we plan it. That's what I would encourage you to look for and to engage with as we walk through services. But also, I want to note one more thing here in verse 35. In addition to the structure of the service, verse 35 also talks about the composition of the assembly. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. I want us to take a moment. I want us to just note who was present here. It says, all the assembly of Israel. And who was that made up of? It includes the women, the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. It specifically highlights at least three groups that were participating in this service, in this assembly. First, he notes women, which would have been culturally odd for the day, right? That would not have been typical of other cultures and other assemblies, and he says, I want them included in this assembly. He also calls out the little ones. Now, the little ones here is a bit generic term, but it means children, It means he wants the children present to see this ceremony, to hear what God has commanded as the word of the law is read. That's why that's a priority. Kids, if you're sitting here this morning, you may not understand everything that goes on up here. You may not understand everything that we do. But there's a reason we want you here with us. Because you get to participate in the same way as all the rest of us in what God is doing here in this church. We need you here. We want you here. And parents, if you have a child that potentially has some, okay, they get noisy. Okay, look, I've got five children below the age of seven. I get it. Okay, and about half the time it's one of my kids. Okay, don't be self-conscious about that. We want the kids here. We want them participating in what we're doing. They need to be a part of it. We need their presence. So bring them in. Explain to them what's going on. Explain to them what we're doing. And then lastly, he notes these sojourners, he notes that the visitors and those that were not ethnically Israelites were still a part of this service. Those that weren't a part of the Israelites of the day. The point is that everyone here was supposed to participate. Everyone was supposed to be engaged in what was going on. Their covenant renewal was marked by biblical diversity, by this broad scope of inclusion. And again, don't get caught on the words. I'm not talking about some sort of diversity, equity, inclusion sort of terminology. I'm just saying that everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ belongs in the church. And that should be true of our services, right? Our covenant celebrations, our services together as a body should also be marked by this sort of thing. Because biblical diversity is the appropriate manifestation of undeserved mercy. Because you don't get to be a part of the church because of where you grew up, because of how much money you make, because of how old you are, because of where you're from or the color of your skin. None of those things define who is in and out of the church. Who is in and out of the church is defined solely by our faith in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter... What matters is your faith in Jesus Christ and your desire to submit to his word and live in accordance with it. That's why the church is such a weird countercultural institution. Because in every other vein of life, what people are told is you get together with people that look like you, act like you, sound like you, talk like you, walk like you. And in the church, they go, what in the world are these people doing together? So we have the young and the old together, right? We have the married and the single together. We have those that are natives that call Faith Bible Church home and also the visitors. 
We've got the rich and the poor. We've got men. We've got women. That's the point. Because if our desire is to represent God's mercy, then our heart ought to be to invite anyone to know that mercy that God gives us. We should desire to see our children know the Lord. We should desire to see our neighbors know the Lord. We should desire to see our co-workers know the Lord. And we should share with them, and when they do, invite them into this messy body. And no, that means we won't all get along. Because we come from a lot of different backgrounds, and because we see things differently. But that's what we're called to be as the church. Every time we gather, we should gather to celebrate the God-ordained biblical diversity of the church. It should be a celebration of the fact that we don't come the same from the same backgrounds, but we do serve the same Lord. And that's a good thing. Maybe I've belabored that point too much, but I think it's worth noting. It's because all of these things have a tendency to get our eyes off of what the center thing is when we gather together. It is so easy to get consumed with the activities and the things that we run into and the things that would distract us on a Sunday morning that we take our eyes off of where it should be, take our eyes off of Christ. I love the way A.W. Tozier puts this. He says, we are saved to worship God. All that Christ has done in the past and all that he is doing now leads to this one end. You get that? And when our focus, when our purpose is laser-like on that, the other things that distract us just melt away. Because God's undeserved mercy, when we embrace that in our own lives, then we begin to manifest attitudes of grateful worship, celebrating Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We begin to express this sober obedience, seeking to live in alignment with God's word, and we embrace the biblical diversity of Christ's church as a good thing. Now go back to your sheet. Okay? Take out your phone or take out that note and look down at those five questions you asked yourself at the beginning of the message. And I want you to look at those answers and say, how did my answer show what I notice when I gather on a Sunday morning? Is what you tend to notice, what you tend to like, what you tend to dislike based upon God's priorities or based upon your preferences? Is your attitude in worship marked by what's going on externally or what God is doing internally as he prepares you for worshiping him? I think the critical thing that's worth noting here from Joshua 8 is it aligns where the focus of our worship should be. It describes what our attitude in worship should be. So as you take that list home with you, as you think about that list over the course of this week, I want you to ask yourself the question, is what matters to me in worship the same as what mattered to the Israelites here? Is what matters to me in worship the same as what matters to God when he gathers his church. Let's pray.
Father, I know for my own sake, it's so easy to get off on externals. It's so easy to get concerned with the trappings of worship, the things that would distract on a Sunday morning, the things that would cause me to focus on myself, on even other things and other people, and would take our eyes off of you. I pray that this text would be an encouragement to us. It would remind us of the fact that you have saved us, not because we deserved it, but because you chose to set our love or your love on us. And because you've saved us, we can offer you grateful worship, celebrating what you've done us for us, what you've done in us. We can seek to be sober in our obedience, to take seriously sin, and to seek to live for you. And we can embrace the diversity of the church. We can be grounded in the word, and we can celebrate what you've done in that. Father, I pray as a church that we would continue to move forward in those areas. That each and every one of us, as we come together as a church week in and week out, would make your priorities our priorities. Would seek to make what you view as critical, critical to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.